Chapter 23, Part 1 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Dread, Chapter 23, Part 1, The Camp Meeting. The place selected for the camp meeting was in one of the most picturesque portions of the neighborhood. It was a small, partially cleared spot in the midst of a dense forest which stretched away in every direction in cool green aisles of checkered light and shade. In the central clearing, a sort of rude amphitheater of seats was formed of rough pine slabs. Around the edges of the forest, the tents of the various worshippers were pitched for the spending of three or four days and nights upon the ground is deemed an essential part of the service. The same clear stream which wound round the dwelling of Tiff prattled its way with a modest gurgle through the forest and furnished the assembly with water. The Gordons, having come merely for the purpose of curiosity and having a residence in the neighborhood, did not provide themselves with a tent. The servants, however, were less easily satisfied. Aunt Rose shook her head and declared oracularly that the blessing was sure to come down in the night, and them that wanted to get a part of it would have to be there. Consequently, Nina was beset to allow her people to have a tent, in which they could take turns in staying all night as candidates for the blessing. In compliance with that law of good-humored indulgence which had been the traditionary usage of her family, Nina acceded, and the Gordon tent spread its snowy sails to the rejoicing of their hearts. Aunt Rose predominated about the door, alternately slapping the children and joining the chorus of hymns which she heard from every part of the campground. On the outskirts were various rude booths in which whiskey and water and sundry articles of provision and fodder for horses were dispensed for a consideration. Abijah Skinflint here figured among the money-changers, while his wife and daughter were gossiping through the tents of the women. In front of the seats, under a dense cluster of pines, was the preacher's stand, a rude stage of rough boards, with a railing about it and a desk of small slabs supporting a Bible and hymn-book. The preachers were already assembling, and no small curiosity was expressed with regard to them by the people who were walking up and down among the tents. Nina, leaning on the arm of Clayton, walked about the area with the rest, and Clayton leaned on the arm of Uncle John, and Aunt Nesbitt and Aunt Maria came behind. To Nina this scene was quite new, for a long residence in the northern states had placed her out of the way of such things, and her shrewd insight into character and her love of drollery found an abundant satisfaction in the various little points and oddities of the scene. They walked to the Gordon tent, in which a preliminary meeting was already in full course. A circle of men and women interspersed with children were sitting with their eyes shut and their heads thrown back singing at the top of their voices. Occasionally one or other would vary the exercise by the clapping of hands, jumping straight up into the air, 
falling flat on the ground, screaming, dancing, and laughing. Oh, set me up on a rock, screamed one. I's got up, screamed another. Glory, cried the third, and a tempest of amens poured in between. I got a experience, cried one, and forthwith began piping it out in a high key while others kept on singing. I's got a experience, shouted Tom Tit, whom Aunt Rose, with maternal care, had taken with her. No, you ain't neither. Sit down, said Aunt Rose, kneading him down as if he had been a batch of biscuits, and going on at the same time with her hymn. I's on the rock of ages, screamed a neighbor. I want to get on a rock edgeways, screamed Tom Tit, struggling desperately with Aunt Rose's great fat hands. Bind yourself, I'll crack you over, said Aunt Rose, and Tom Tit, still continuing rebellious, was cracked over accordingly, with such force as to send him head foremost on the straw at the bottom of the tent, an indignity which he resented with loud howls of impotent wrath, which, however, made no impression on the general whirlwind of screaming, shouting, and praying. Nina and Uncle John stood at the tent door, laughing heartily. Clayton looked on with his usual thoughtful gravity of aspect, and turned her head away with an air of disgust. "'Why don't you laugh?' said Nina, looking round at her. "'It doesn't make me feel like it,' said Anne. "'It makes me feel melancholy.' "'Why so?' "'Because religion is a sacred thing with me, and I don't like to see it travestied,' said she. "'Oh!' I don't respect religion any the less for a good laugh at its oddities. I believe I was born without any organ of reverence, and so don't feel the incongruity of the thing as you do. The distance between laughing and praying isn't so very wide in my mind as it is in some people's. We must have charity, said Clayton, for every religious manifestation. Barbarous and half-civilized people always find the necessity for outward and bodily demonstration in worship. I suppose because the nervous excitement wakes up and animates their spiritual natures and gets them into a receptive state, just as you have to shake up sleeping persons and shout in their ears to put them in a condition to understand you. I have known real conversions to take place under just these excitements. But, said Anne, I think we might teach them to be decent. These things ought not to be allowed. I believe, said Clayton, intolerance is a rooted vice in our nature. The world is as full of different minds and bodies as the woods are of leaves, and each one has its own habit of growth, and yet our first impulse is to forbid everything that would not be proper for us. No, let the African scream, dance, and shout, and fall in trances. It suits his tropical lineage and blood as much as our thoughtful inward ways do us. I wonder who that is, said Nina, as a general movement on the ground proclaimed the arrival of someone who appeared to be exciting general interest. The stranger was an unusually tall, portly man, apparently somewhat past the middle of life, whose erect carriage, full figure, and red cheeks, and a certain dashing frankness of manner, might have indicated him as belonging rather to the military than the clerical profession. He carried a rifle on his shoulder, which he set down carefully against the corner of the preacher's stand, 
and went around shaking hands among the company with a free and jovial air that might almost be described by the term rollicking. Why, said Uncle John, that's Father Bonnie. How are you, my fine fellow? What, you, Mr. Gordon? How do you do? said Father Bonnie, grasping his hand in his and shaking it heartily. Why, they tell me, he said, looking at him with a jovial smile, that you have fallen from grace. Oh, even so, said Uncle John, I'm a sad dog, I dare say. Oh, I tell you what, said Father Bonnie, but it takes a strong hook and a long line to pull in you rich sinners. Your money bags and your niggers hang around you like millstones. You're too tough for the gospel, ha, said he, shaking his fist at him playfully. But I'm going to come down upon you today with the law. I can't tell you. You want the thunders of Sinai? You must have a dose of the law. Well, said Uncle John, thunder away. I suppose we need it, all of us. But now, Father Bonnie, you ministers are always preaching to us poor dogs on the evils of riches, but somehow I don't see any of you that are much afraid of owning horses or niggers or any other good thing that you can get your hands on. Now I hear that you've got a pretty snug little place and a likely drove to work it. You'll have to look for, out for your own soul, Father Bonnie. A general laugh echoed this retort, for Father Bonnie had the reputation of being a shrewder hand at a bargain and of having more expertness in swapping a horse or trading a negro than any other man for six counties round. He's into you now, old man, said several of the bystanders laughingly. Oh, as to that, said Father Bonnie, laughing also, I go in with Paul. They that preach the gospel must live the gospel. Now, Paul was a man that stood up for his rights to live as other folks do. Isn't it right, says he, that those that plant a vineyard should first eat of the fruit? Haven't we power to lead about a sister, a wife, says he? And if Paul had lived in our time, he would have said a drove of niggers too. No danger about us ministers being hurt by riches, while you laymen are so slow about supporting the gospel. At the elbow of Father Bonnie stood a brother minister, who was in many respects his contrast. He was tall, thin, and stooping, with earnest black eyes and a serene sweetness of expression. A threadbare suit of rusty black, evidently carefully worn, showed the poverty of his worldly estate. He carried in his hand a small portmanteau, probably containing a change of linen, his Bible, and a few sermons. Father Dixon was a man extensively known throughout all the region. He was one of those men among the ministers of America who keep alive our faith in Christianity and renew on earth the portrait of the old apostle, quote, in journeyings often, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides those things that are without that which cometh upon them daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and they are not weak? Who is offended, and they burn not? Close quote. Everyone in the state knew and respected Father Dixon, and like the generality of the world, people were very well pleased, and thought it extremely proper and meritorious for him to bear weariness and painfulness 
hunger and cold, in their spiritual service, leaving to them the right of attending or not attending to him according to their own convenience. Father Dixon was one of those who had never yielded to the common customs and habits of the country in regard to the holding of slaves. A few who had been left him by a relation he had at great trouble and expense transported to a free state and settled there comfortably. The world need not trouble itself with seeking to know or reward such men, for the world cannot know and has no power to reward them. Their citizenship is in heaven, and all that can be given them in this life is like a morsel which a peasant gives in his cottage to him who tomorrow will reign over a kingdom. He had stood listening to the conversation thus far with the grave yet indulgent air which he generally listened to the sallies of his ministerial brothers. Father Bonney, though not as much respected or confided in as Father Dixon, had, from the frankness of his manners and a certain rude but effective style of eloquence, a more general and apparent popularity. He produced more sensation on the campground, could sing louder and longer, and would often rise to the flights of eloquence both original and impressive. Many were offended by the freedom of his manner out of the pulpit, and the stricter sort were known to have said of him, quote, that when out he never ought to be in, and when in never out, close quote. As the laugh that rose at his last sally died away, he turned to Father Dixon and said, What do you think? I don't think, said Father Dixon mildly, that you would ever have found Paul leading a drove of Negroes. Well, why not? As well as Abraham, the father of the faithful, didn't he have three hundred trained servants? Uh, servants, perhaps, but not slaves, said Father Dixon, for they all bore arms. For my part, I think the buying, selling, and trading of human beings for purposes of gain is a sin in the sight of God. Well now, Father Dixon, I wouldn't have thought that you had read your Bible to so little purpose as that. I wouldn't believe it. What do you say to Moses? He led out a whole army of fugitive slaves through the Red Sea, said Father Dixon. Well, I tell you now, said Father Bonney, if the buying, selling, or holding of a slave for the sake of gain is, as you say, a sin, then three-fourths of all the Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians in the slave states of the Union are of the devil. I think it is a sin, notwithstanding, said Father Dixon quietly. Well, but doesn't Moses say expressly, Ye shall buy of the heathen round about you? There's into him, said a Georgia trader, who, having camped with a coffle of negroes in the neighborhood, had come up to camp meeting. All those things, said Father Dixon, belong to the old covenant which Paul says was annulled, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, and have nothing to do with us who have risen with Christ. We have got past Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and have come unto Mount Zion, and ought to seek the things that are above, where Christ sitteth. I say, brother, said another of the ministers, tapping him on the shoulder, it's time for the preaching to begin. You can finish your discussion some other time. Come, Father Bonnet, 
Come forward here and strike up the hymn. Father Bonnie accordingly stepped to the front of that stand, and with him another minister of equal height and breadth of frame, and standing with their heads on, they uplifted in stentorian voices the following hymn. Brethren, don't you hear the sound? The martial trumpet now is blowing. Men in order listing round, and soldiers to the standard flowing. As the sound of the hymn rolled through the aisles and arches of the woods, the heads of different groups who had been engaged in conversation were observed turning toward the stand, and voices from every part of the campground took up the air as, suiting the action to the words, they began flowing to the place of preaching. The hymn went on, keeping up the same martial images. Bounty offered life and peace to every soldier. This is given when the toys of life shall cease, a mansion bright prepared in heaven. As the throng pressed up and came crowding from the distant aisles of the wood, the singers seemed to exert themselves to throw a wilder vehemence into the song, stretching out their arms and beckoning eagerly. They went on singing, You need not fear, the cause is good. Let who will to crown aspire. If this the cause the martyrs bled and shouted victory in the fire. In this cause let's follow on, and soon we'll tell the pleasing story how by faith we won the crown, and fought our way to life and glory. O ye rebels, come enlist, the officers now are recruiting. Why will you in sin persist, or waste your time in vain disputing? All excuses now are vain, for if you do not sue for favor, down you'll sink to endless pain, and bear the wrath of God for ever. There is always something awful in the voice of the multitude, it would seem as if the breath that a crowd breathed out together in moments of enthusiasm carried with it a portion of the dread and mystery of their own immortal natures. The whole area before the pulpit and in the distant aisles of the forest became one vast surging sea of sound as negroes and whites, slaves and freemen, saints and sinners, slaveholders, slave hunters, slave traders, ministers, elders, and laymen alike join in the pulses of that mighty song. A flood of electrical excitement seemed to rise with it, as with a voice of many waters the rude chant went on. Hark the victors singing loud, Emmanuel's chariot wheels are rumbling, mourners weep through the crowd, and Satan's kingdom now is tumbling. Our friend, Ben Dakin, pressed to the stand, and with tears streaming down his cheeks, exceeded all others in the energy of his vociferations. Ben had just come from almost a fight with another slave-hunter who had boasted a better-trained pack of dogs than his own, and had broken away to hurry to the campground with the assurance that he had given fits when the preaching was over. And now he stood there, tears rolling down his cheeks, singing with the heartiest earnestness and devotion. What shall we make of it, poor heathen Ben? Is it any more out of the way for him to think of being a Christian in this manner than for some of his more decent brethren who take Sunday passage for eternity in the cushioned New York or Boston pews? and solemnly drowse through very sleepy tunes under a dim, hazy impression that they are going to heaven? Of the two, we think Ben's chance is the best, for in some blind way he does think himself a sinner, 
and in need of something he calls salvation. And doubtless, while the tears stream down his face, the poor fellow makes a new resolve against the whiskey bottle, while his more respectable, sleepy brethren never think of making one against the cotton bale. Then there was his rival, also, Jim Stokes, a surly, foul-mouthed, swearing fellow. He joins in the chorus of the hymn, and feels a troublous, vague yearning deep down within him, which makes him for the moment doubt whether he had better knock down Ben at the end of the meeting. As to Harry, who stood also among the crowd, the words and tune recalled but too vividly the incidents of his morning interview with dread, and with it the tumultuous boiling of his bitter controversy with the laws of society in which he found himself. In hours of such high excitement, a man seems to have an intuitive perception of the whole extent and strength of what is within himself, and if there be anything unnatural or false in his position, he realizes it with double intensity. Mr. John Gordon, likewise, gave himself up, without resistance, to be swayed by the feeling of the hour. He sung with enthusiasm, and wished that he was a soldier of somebody, going somewhere, or a martyr shouting victory in the fire, and if the conflict described had been with any other foe than his own laziness and self-indulgence, had there been any outward tangible enemy at the moment, he would doubtless have enlisted without a loss of time. When the hymn was finished, however, there was a general wiping of eyes, and they all sat down to listen to the sermon. Father Bonney led off in an animated strain. His discourse was like the tropical swamp bursting out with a lush abundance of every kind of growth. Grave, gay, grotesque, solemn, fanciful, and even coarse caricature, provoking the broadest laughter. The audience were swayed by him like trees before the wind. There were not wanting touches of rude pathos as well as earnest appeals. The meeting was a union, one, of Presbyterian and Methodist, in which the ministers of both these denominations took equal part, and it was an understood agreement among them, of course, that they were not to venture upon polemic ground, or attack each other's peculiarities of doctrine. But Abijah's favorite preacher could not get through a sermon without some quite pointed exposition of Scripture bearing on his favorite doctrine of election which caused the next minister to run vehement tilt on the correlative doctrines of free grace with a eulogy on John Wesley. The auditors, meanwhile, according to their respective sentiments, encouraged each preacher with a cry of Amen, Glory be to God, Go on, brother, and other similar exclamations. About noon the services terminated pro tem, and the audience dispersed themselves to their respective tents through the grove, where there was an abundance of chatting, visiting, eating, and drinking, as if the vehement denunciations and passionate appeals of the morning had been things of another state of existence. Uncle John, in the most cheery possible frame of mind, escorted his party into the woods and assisted them in unpacking a hamper containing wine, cold fowls, cake, pies, and other delicacies which Aunt Katie had packed for the occasion. Old Tiff had set up his tent in a snug little nook on the banks of the stream, 
where he informed passers-by that it was his young massa and Mrs. establishment and that he tip had come to wait on them with a good-natured view of doing him a pleasure nina selected a spot for their nooning at no great distance and spoke in the most gracious and encouraging manner to them from time to time see now can't you how real quality behaves themselves he said grimly to old hundred who came up bringing the carriage cushions for the party to sit down upon real quality sees into things i tell you what blood sees into blood miss nina sees these here children ain't the common sort that's what she does um, said old hundred such a muss as ye keep up about your chillin tell you what they ain't no better than utter white trash now you talk that air way i'll knock you down said old tiff who though a peaceable and law-abiding creature in general was driven in desperation to the last resort of force john what are you saying to tiff said nina who had overheard some of the last words go back to your own tent and don't you trouble him i have taken him under my protection the party enjoyed their dinner with infinite relish and nina amused herself in watching tiff's cooking preparations before departing to the preaching ground he had arranged a slow fire on which a savory stew had been all the morning simmering and which on the taking off of the pot lid diffused an agreeable odor through the place i say tiff how delightfully that smells said nina getting up and looking into the pot wouldn't miss fanny be so kind as to favor us with a taste of it fanny to whom tiff punctiliously referred the question gave a bashful consent but who shall describe the pride and glory that swelled the heart of tiff as he saw a bowl of his stew smoking among the gordon viands praised and patronized by the party and when nina placed upon their simple board literally a board and nothing more a small loaf of frosted cake in exchange it certainly required all the grace of the morning exercises to keep tiff within the due bounds of humility he really seemed to dilate with satisfaction tiff how did you like the sermon said nina days pretty far miss nina there's a good deal of quality preaching what do you mean by quality preaching tiff why dead air kind is good for quality full of long words you know i specs it's very good but poor nigger like me can't see his way through it you see miss nina what i studying on lately is how to get these ere children to canaan and i hers first with one ear and then to utter but pears like ain't clear about it yet there's a heap about moles and everything else and it's all very good but pears like i ain't clear after all about that air they says come to christ and i says where is he anyhow bless you i want to come they talks about going in the gate and knocking on the door and about marching on the road about fighting and being soldiers of the cross and the lord knows now i'd be glad to get the children through any gate and i could take em on my back and travel all day if there was any road and if there was a door bless me if they wouldn't hear old tiff a-rappin i specs the lord would have fur to open it would so but arter all when the preachin is done there won't appear to be nothin to it 
there ain't no gate there ain't no dough nor no way and there ain't no fightin cept when ben dagan and jim stokes get jawin about their dogs and everybody comes back eatin their dinner quite comfortable and pears like there wa'n't no such thing they's been preachin about that air troubles me does so cause i wants fur to get these yer children in the kingdom some way or other i don't know but some of the quality would know more about it well hang me if i haven't felt just so said uncle john when they were singing that hymn about enlisting and being a soldier if there had been any fighting doing anywhere i should have certainly gone right into it and the preaching always stirs me up terribly but then as tiff says after it's all over why there's dinner to be eaten and i can't say anything better than to eat it and then by the time i have drunk two or three glasses of wine it's all gone now that's just the way with me they says said tiff that we must wait for the blessing to come down upon us and aunt rose says it's them that shouts that gets the blessing and i's been shouting till i's most beat out but i hasn't got it then one of them said none of them could get in but the elect but then t'other ones he seemed to think different and in the meeting they tells about the scales falling from their eyes and i wish they'd fall from mine i do so perhaps miss nina now you could tell me something oh don't ask me i don't know anything about these things i think i feel a little like uncle john there are two kinds of sermons and hymns one gets me to sleep and the other excites and stirs me up in a general kind of way but they don't either seem to do me real good for my part i am such an enemy to stagnation said clayton that i think there is advantage in everything that stirs up the soul even though we see no immediate results i listen to music see pictures as far as i can uncritically i say here i am see what you can do with me so i present myself to almost all religious exercises it is the most mysterious part of our nature i do not pretend to understand it therefore never criticize for my part said anne there is so much in the wild freedom of these meetings that shocks my taste and sense of propriety that i am annoyed more than i am benefited there spoke the true well-trained conventionalist said clayton but look around you see in this wood among these flowers and festoons of vine and arches of green how many shocking unsightly growths you would not have had all this underbrush these dead limbs these briars running right over trees and sometimes choking and killing them you would have well-trimmed trees and velvet turf but I love briars, dead limbs, and all, for the very savage freedom. Every once in a while you see in a wood a jasmine, or a sweet briar, or a grapevine, that throws itself into a gracefulness of growth which a landscape gardener would go down on his knees for, but cannot get. Nature resolutely denies it to him. She says, no, I keep this for my own. You won't have my wildness, my freedom, very well then you shall not have the graces that spring from it just so it is with men unite any assembly of common men in a great enthusiasm work them up into an abandon and let every one let go and speak as nature prompts and you will have brush underwood briars and all grotesque growths 
but now and then some thought or sentiment will be struck out with a freedom or power such as you cannot get in any other way. You cultivated people are much mistaken when you despise the enthusiasm of the masses. There is more truth than you would think in the old vox populi vox dei. What's that? said Nina. The voice of the people is the voice of God. There is truth in it. I never repent my share in a popular excitement, provided it be of the higher sentiments. And I do not ask too strictly whether it has produced any tangible result. I reverence the people as I do the woods for the wild, grand freedom with which their humanity develops itself. I'm afraid, Nina, said Aunt Nesbitt in a low tone to the latter, I'm afraid he isn't orthodox. What makes you think so, Aunt? Oh, I don't know. His talk hasn't the real sound. You want something that ends in Asian, don't you, Aunt? Justification, sanctification, or something of that kind. Meanwhile, the Department of Abijah Skinflint exhibited a decided activity. This was a long, low booth made of poles and roofed with newly cut green boughs. Here the whiskey barrel was continually pouring forth its supplies to customers who crowded around it. Abijah sat on the middle of a sort of rude counter, dangling his legs and chewing a straw, while his negro was busy in helping his various customers. Abijah, as we said, being a particularly high Calvinist, was recreating himself by carrying on a discussion with a fat little turnipy brother of the Methodist persuasion. I say, he said, Stringfellow put it to you Methodist this morning. Hit the nail on the head, I thought. Not a bit of it, said the other contemptuously. Why, Elter Bascom chawed him up completely. There wasn't nothing left of him. Well, said Abijah, strange how folks will see things. Why, it's just as clear to me that all things is decreed. Why, that air nails everything up tight and handsome. It gives a fellow a kind of comfort to think on it. Things is just as they have got to be. All this free grace stuff is dreadful, loose talk. If things is decreed before the world was made, why, there seems to be some sense in their coming to pass. But if everything kind of turns up whenever folks thinks on it, it's a kind of shaky business. I don't like this tying up things so tight, said the other, who evidently was one of the free jovial order. I go in for the freedom of the will, free gospel, and free grace. For my part, said Abijah, rather grimly, if things is managed my way, I shouldn't commune with nobody that didn't believe in election up to the hub. You strong lectioners think you's among the elect, said one of the bystanders. You wouldn't be so crank about it if you didn't. Now see here, if everything is decreed, how am I going to help myself? That air is none of my lookout, said Abijah, but there is a pint my mind rests on. Everything is fixed as it can be, and it makes a man mighty easy. End of Dread Chapter 23 Part 1 The Camp Meeting